my view is we're talking about pandemic, but perhaps we should be peril agnostic here and be talking about non-damage business interruption as the cause of the economic loss and the peril, be it terrorism, be it pandemic, be it cyber, systemic cyber attack, be it climate event, is almost irrelevant. Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. We live in incredibly uncertain times, and it's at times like this that we value clarity above all else. As you can see, my interviewee in this episode makes himself crystal clear. The voice you've just heard is Julian Enoisi, the CEO of the UK's government-backed terrorism insurance mutual, Pool Re. Born hastily as a response to the successful mainland UK bombing campaign of the IRA 27 years ago, it has since evolved into a far more sophisticated entity, managing a substantial surplus, opening commercial relationships with global reinsurers, and liaising with similar global terror pools and mechanisms around the world. In recent years, it has immeasurably improved its modelling and underwriting capabilities, and also developed new covers in the form of non-damage business interruption. Julian has in the past made no secret about wanting to broaden the scope of Pool Reed to new perils, such as cyber, and made it clear he would have preferred UK Flood to have also come under his remit. In this chat, he sets out his vision clearly and succinctly. I commend the next 20 minutes to you. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Julian, well, thanks so much for sparing the time. First thing to clear up, there's something that's been in the news in the UK over the last couple of weeks was a suggestion that maybe that Pool Re's uh, surplus might be used to compensate deserving UK insureds uh, who've got some uninsured losses. What do you got to say to that? I suppose the first thing, Mark, is I don't think I've ever been as popular as I am now. You know, six and a half billion pounds tends to make you pretty popular. And you'll have seen the same articles that I've seen about the Nightlife Association asking the Chancellor to give that money, give all of the money to it. And obviously, the industry is in a challenging time with everything that's going on and the fact that this is going to be, in all likelihood, one of the largest losses of all time and the economic loss is going to dwarf the insured loss. And so clearly the industry will look at lots of different ways. And you've seen Lloyd's is doing something. I think the ABI is launching a fund. And it's absolutely right that Paul Reed look at whether it contributes in some way because the cohort of policyholders are the same policyholders that were this to have been a terrorist event would have been suffering. It just so happens that this is not a terrorism event, but should we be doing something is something that we as a board of directors will doubtless consider. So do you think maybe this should be something ex gratia that the industry should have got together to sort of ward off some of this? It seems to me that the industry seems to have lost somehow the early PR battle with the plaintiff lawyers. At the and do you think the industry perhaps could have been a bit more on the front foot with something? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very different question to what Paul Ree should be doing, because obviously Paul Ree's raison d'etre is to have built up a fund of money to pay for future terrorism losses. And you can't say however big that fund is, that it's ever big enough, because of course, while six and a half billion and, and then add on top of that, the reinsurance and the ILS sounds like a lot of money. We know from our modeling that actually you could have a much bigger loss. But to your specific question about the industry, well, 
Look, I mean, I think there's no question that in the early days, we as an industry did look a little bit, you know, left-footed or two-footed, I should say. In our response, I think there was perhaps a lack of empathy. I think perhaps we didn't do some of the things that I would have liked to have at least offered, which is that had this been a terrorist event, we would have had a claim-paying mechanism that would have allowed enormous amounts of liquidity to flow through the insurance market into the pockets of small businesses very, very quickly. The fact that it was a pandemic event, I believe perhaps we should have offered our, our mechanism to the government as a paying agency mechanism. We didn't, and that ship has sailed. But in terms of, you know, should we be making ex-gratia payments? I think that's, you know, as you know, that's fraught with difficulty. And you're seeing what's happening in the States with retrospective legislation to make insurers pay. These are really difficult things to do because they create precedent for future events. And I think what I would like to see come out of this is us as an industry being much more innovative and creative in the products that we offer because the world of insurance is changing and that we need to evolve to be offering products that respond to the kinds of events that the world is going to see going forward which are going to be very different to what we've seen in the past so if i press you for some straight answers that first question is it hands off my six and six billion because that money is terrorism money it's not really uh, obviously it wasn't in collected for pandemic I think it's a question of how you characterize it. So clearly, it's not a secret that there is a discussion going on amongst, you know, 95% of the UK PNC industry, which are members of Poolry, and about whether or not Poolry as an, ind- as an entity should release some of those funds to pay, and I wouldn't describe it as ex-gratia payments, I would describe it as, let's say, a charitable relief fund to small businesses whose policies did not respond. So let's describe it that way. No decision's been taken on that. And the reason their decision has been taken on that is because it's an incredibly complicated issue. The industry is one stakeholder. The government is another stakeholder. And those funds are earmarked for a particular purpose. And therefore, the decision that needs to be reached, which you're pressing me on, hasn't yet been reached. Let's get into sort of the big picture about pandemic uh, disease risk. Do you think a public-private solution like, like the one that you are, you're running is the only way of dealing with such a thing? That's a really complicated question. The answer to the question of whether there needs to be some kind of public-private solution or at least some kind of backstop, let's say, or let's start from the other end of the telescope. Can the industry deal with pandemic on its own? I think that is clearly no. And you're seeing a market failure like the one that occurred in 2001 after 9-11 or the one that occurred in 1993 after the Baltic Exchange. You're seeing it happen because insurers and reinsurers are excluding pandemic. In fact, they're going beyond pandemic to human communicable disease in their policy wordings. Therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, if you're a small business and you go to a bank for a loan and the bank insists that you have the right insurance cover in place, how do we ensure that non-damage business interruption cover, because that's really what we're talking about, non-damage business interruption cover is available to those businesses. And my view is we're talking about pandemic, but perhaps we should be peril agnostic here and be talking about non-damage business interruption as the cause of the economic loss and the peril, be it terrorism, be it pandemic, be it cyber, systemic cyber attack, be it climate event, is almost irrelevant. And because of the size of the loss and what you're seeing with that globally interconnected world that we now have, is that, of course, it has to have some kind of government guarantee behind it. And then you get into the question of, well, is that a levy system like you see traditionally in places like France and Spain? Or is that a public-private solution like you see in the UK and America traditionally? For example, if you were able to, if you pushed 
pandemic included pandemic coverage, non-damage business disruption arising from pandemic into pool re- do you think would you see that as a would that be a properly diversifying peril hadn't thought of it that way to be honest mark uh, you know in, in many respects because of course for me my job in a sense is to ensure the resilience of the british economy in a sense i'm not here to make a profit other than to generate a profit to generate reserves that pay for future losses so i hadn't thought of it necessarily in that way from pool re's perspective what I would say is that Puri is a pretty good model for dealing with tail risk event. And therefore, if you were looking at this in the future, why would you start from a blank sheet of paper as opposed to a model that is pretty well regarded around the world? And could you therefore achieve some diversification in your reinsurance purchasing? Possibly. It would depend on the design of the scheme. And you know, I'm not going to sit here and say to you, it has to be Paul Ree, because there are clearly going to be other ideas that are going to be mooted and they should all receive the proper attention. But in a structure that you've already got, why wouldn't you create an overarching structure that manages risk? But let's face it, the government has got these on its balance sheet. It produced a document the day of the budget called the government as insurer of last resort. It knows it's the insurer of last resort for many, many different perils, not just pandemic. The insurance industry has got to match itself to the risk that the government now sees that it has and try and optimally share that risk and put as much of it into the private market as is possible and leave only the tail with the government. And that's the challenge we're faced with. Well, I want to ask you about what, how you see the nature of pandemic. I would say that it is probably more systemic than terrorism, perhaps unless you're looking at the sort of biological, radiological, nuclear part of terrorism for example if there was a dirty bomb in central london one would presume that it would the effect would probably be worse than a pandemic because i suppose it would shut central london for as long as it needed to be shut which could be periods of many years and, and there wouldn't be any argument about it but the systemic nature of pandemic risk versus traditional terrorism for example that obviously the center of london does not correlate with the center of manchester although we know that we, they are both exposed to bomb threat type terrorism, for example. But of course, pandemic is exposed all over the world simultaneously. Does that mean that it would have to be insured in a slightly different way? Yeah, I, I think it does. I think it means that you have to almost sort of reverse engineer the structure that you would put in place to do this, because the tail or the big piece of the risk is going to be far more and by the way, we don't yet know what the government, either here or anywhere else, by the way, uh, you know, I mean, there's talk in the States of it being a 500 billion pound cap, and we know already the Americans are into the trillions of, of expense. So we don't know what the structure would look like, and we certainly don't know what the British government's approach to this will be. But the reality is, is that the global nature of the economy means that you're absolutely right. It's not like you could create pools in every country and all the reinsurers will say, well, we'll do a bit of pool re and we'll do a bit of ARPC and we'll do a bit of TRIA in the States. Because here, the, the amount of capacity they're going to be to de- able to deploy to each of those pools is going to be much less because it's a global issue, as you've rightly pointed out. Secondly, as you, again, rightly pointed out, yes, you could have a catastrophic terrorism. And we've certainly done modeled losses, which are much, much bigger than conventional terrorism losses, but they tend to happen in one area. It is unlikely that it will happen in London and in New York and in Sydney at the same time. So that the challenge is a very, very different one. And I think it is going to require, in many respects, exactly what Paul Ree would have been 27 years ago, where the government would have almost been ground up. 
but you've also got to devise a model that incorporates all of the people that are relevant. So you've got to have a policyholder deductible. You've got to have an insurance industry retention. You've got to have a reinsurance industry participation, capital markets to the extent that you can, the premium buffer that is built up. And of course, a big question will be, if you have a government backstop, what's the division of premium? What's the fair division of premium, given the liabilities that either the industry or the private sector and the public sector are taking on? But that's six different parties to a transaction before you then hit the taxpayer. And then, of course, you've got a paying agency mechanism to get money into the system very quickly, which we don't have today. And secondly, you have a recoupment mechanism to get money back from future premiums, which, again, we don't have today. So the question then becomes, well, actually, should this be a mandatory cover for businesses? Because actually, if they're buying the insurance, then the premium comes in and it means you've got a recoupment mechanism post loss as well. You've also avoided the moral hazard of this person didn't buy the, terror, the, the, the pandemic cover and therefore he doesn't get paid, but this person does. But then actually we end up paying everybody and therefore what's the incentive for buying insurance? All of these issues have got to be dealt with in the design of a model. Right. So you'd say so it could be something even that could be added onto business rates, for example. Yeah, I don't like that approach, Mark, because as you know, I'm a red-blooded free marketeer and I like the idea of it being a, an insurance purchase and a, an acknowledgement of risk and an understanding of risk because unless we do the second half of this which is risk mitigation and risk management then we will always be stuck where it becomes a, it's on the government's balance sheet forever whereas today let's say and I'm making this up by the way but let's say it was 95% held by the government the risk and 5% by the insurance industry only by developing a public-private solution will you ever get that to be 10%, 15%, 20% held by the industry and 80% by the government and so on and so forth. So things Only like, by doing... Yeah, yeah. so like um, premium discounts for demonstrable risk mitigation and that kind of stuff. Absolutely, um, and that partnerships with academia, et cetera, to understand the risk better and modelling capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And... I was interested in hearing what you said about that the original insured is going to have to have deductibles. Do you think this is the sort of extreme risk that might require something like coinsurance, you know, maybe 20 or even 30% coinsurance so that everyone understands that it is always going to be a limited solution. It's going to be a fund that tides you over for a few months at the most. Yeah. And look, I mean, I've, I've, you know, as you'd expect in my job, I speak to people that do what I do around the world and it will not surprise you that countries I've spoken to, I have not yet seen the same model being developed in any two countries. So everybody is looking at different kinds of models. And certainly the co-insurance model that you've just described, the country that is probably furthest ahead at the moment is certainly looking at a co-insurance type model. I was going to ask you also about mitigation. One would presume that a good part of the fund should be used to help maintain expensive but what most of the time would be seen to be redundant resources such as stockpiles of personal protective equipment, PPE for for medical staff and respirators and all the sort of things that we've now discovered that we had a, a shortage of and that we probably wished we'd had a nice gleaming stockpile of that was well maintained. Do you think that a pandemic insurance solution should be that part of that, that some of that fund should be there to help maintain something which at, in when the sun's shining looks like a waste of money, but of course now we know when it's raining, it's something you absolutely need and it's very hard to manufacture quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the answer to that question is the first thing you've got to do is build the fund up, Mark. And, you know, I always remember people saying to me, well, you know, I'm not sure that we should go with a pre-funded model for terrorism because it takes forever to get a terror, build the fund up. Well, here we are, you know, we went with a pre-funded model and we now have a fund and that fund gives us opportunities like the one you referred to earlier about whether we should repatriate some of that to pay for small businesses, for example. That is a choice we have. But another one that we have, and I think you're aware of this, I know we've spoken about it in the past, is that we use some of that fund to invest in risk mitigation. So you're aware of the £10 million investment we made into the Metropolitan Police for an information sharing platform, which I think has huge adaptability for risk mitigation in this area to reduce the liability or the potential liability of insurers and reinsurers. Why wouldn't you do the same in the event that you had built up a fund, because pandemics, touch wood, uh, are not everyday events, that once you've built up a fund, you make certain investments out of your fund. I, I always hesitate to call it uh, excess reserves because it's not excess reserves. It's a surplus that is designed for future losses. But if you can genuinely mitigate the loss by, in this case, reducing deaths or, or slowing the progress of a pandemic by having invested in personal protective equipment, then why wouldn't you do that? The corollary, of course, Mark, is you want to make sure that you're not spending money on things that the government should be spending money itself. You want to be adding to risk mitigation, not simply supplanting the government's duty to its citizens. You've been very vocal on on cyber risk. And interestingly, pandemic seems to, now that everyone's working from home, all the cyber insurers I know have been marketing like crazy to say, look, your exposure is really way up. You, you need to get cyber insurance to, to, to all small and uh, medium-sized businesses. Do you think now, if we're going to be in the business of adding pandemic as a, as a peril, do you think we should take the opportunity to add all viruses, whether they be medical or electronic? Look, as I said earlier, I think we need to be peril agnostic because it is very possible that the next thing that happens is a systemic cyber event. And as you know, I've been talking about, as have many other leaders in the industry, about the need for a cyber re but actually, you know, I've actually gone further than that and talked about the need for a catastrophe re. And I know you have a strong affinity with Spain and you'll be very familiar with the consortio model. Uh, yeah. I think the consortio model is superb. I think the CCR model is superb in France. The problem with them is that they are not private market solutions. And so if you were going to develop a catastrophe reef, for want of a better word, that enveloped all of these kind of risks, whether it was climate events in the future or cyber or pandemic or meteor striker. We, we, came, we, we had a close shave a few weeks ago, Mark, uh, with a meteor. <laughs> we were distracted by other things. <laughs> then to my mind, what you're trying to do, remember what the purpose is. The purpose is the resilience of the economy, continued attraction of inward investment, continued flow of money through the economy, through bank lending, et cetera, et cetera. The only way you do that is insurance that is adequate to meet all of these risks. If we solve one and leave the others unresolved, we will have lost an opportunity. What about the insurance market itself? Do you think is it fair for insurers and reinsurers to be trying to exclude COVID-19 at next renewals? I'm not sure it's a question of fairness, Mark. I think you, know, you, you and I both know that the 
quantum involved here dwarfs the size of capital available in the global insurance industry. And so what choice do they really have? You probably, if you were hindsight is 2020, as somebody told me the other day, we probably should have been excluding this entirely a couple of years ago and adding it in as a, as a go forward purchase. You could have bought pandemic insurance, uh, as I understand it, from a Marsh and Munich Re product. And I don't think a single one was sold. And yet people that were giving it away are now saying, well, obviously, we didn't mean to be giving it away. So I, I think actually it should always been ex- excluded because we knew that if this happened, we wouldn't be able to absorb the losses. Well, obviously, we're in a crisis and crisis, crises are always good differentiation points. Sitting from where you're sitting, how do you think how are the best insurers and reinsurers differentiating themselves today in today's market, in today's situation? It's a really uh, interesting question. I think for me, the ones that are going to differentiate themselves and come out on top are the ones that are going to adapt the industry and lead the industry forward. We have a reputation, we have an image, which is one of 350-year-old industry that um, is populated largely by white middle-aged men, which I'm unfortunately one. But actually, we have an opportunity now to do something really, really different. And that isn't just in the product. I'll come to that in a second. But, you know, I read the other day that Lloyd's was, you know, looking to open its doors again as quickly as possible. Why? We have an opportunity to adopt our model. We have an opportunity to be, you know, everybody's saying, well, we're far away from the customer. If we're not able to interact with the customer, why? Of course we can interact with the customer. The customer is in exactly the same position that we are. On the insurance side, I believe that what we have got to do, if we are to remain relevant, we have got to demonstrate that the products that we sell match the needs of businesses. Businesses now know exactly what their problem is. And the difference between this loss or this crisis and the crisis that formed Paul Reed 27 years ago is that 27 years ago, the government was worried about the city of London because that was the heart of the economy. Today, city of London, of course, is still the heart of the economy. But the backbone of the economy is small businesses. And what this is showing is that people in financial services in the city are not just carrying on as if nothing had happened because we're all sitting at home with all the technology. If you're a coffee shop owner or a restaurant owner or a nail bar owner, you can't do that. And so we've got to remain relevant to the customer and provide them with products that really respond when the crisis occurs. And that isn't, and you'll have, you know, you know the the drill as well as I do, you know, the shift from tangible to intangible. We talk about it all the time. We haven't developed the product suites to match it. And so to my mind, it's about two things. It's about making sure that our we produce a working environment that attracts fantastic talent into the industry. Because if you want to do pandemic, Mark, you're going to need doctors and nurses to come and work in insurance, just like I have, as you know, ex-military people working for me in Puri. If you want to do that, you're going to have to offer them flexible working and an environment that is, is high tech and digital and et cetera, et cetera. And in the same time, you've got to offer products that the customer really wants to buy, not that you're trying to sell to him. Well, thanks very much, Julian. I think I've come to the end of all my questioning here, and I think it's been a really good discussion. And I just thank you so much for sparing some time. You must be incredibly busy. And good luck with everything. I think uh, I leave this meeting optimistic for the future that lots of exciting things are happening and uh, I wish you all the best. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. 
Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.